Welcome to A Reason for Hope. Glad you're with us. <laughs> Happy Monday. My name is Adrian. I'm in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey, Adrian. Hey, Scott. And uh, <laughs> hey to all of you joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. This is A Reason for Hope. This is a, a weekday Bible answer program where we take your questions from our live stream audience, where uh, questions about the Bible, the historic Christian faith, uh, whether faith is reasonable, and many, many more questions like that compared to religions. And so we have a panel of uh, Bible teachers who have spent their entire lives studying God's Word, studying the Bible, studying the Christian faith and world religions, so that we could give reasonable <clears throat> and well-informed factual answers to some of the toughest questions. Or perhaps you just want a little clarity on what uh, a, a specific Bible verse means and how to apply it to your life. So we'd encourage you to do so. To chime in, you can do so by joining us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com. You can either type in our URL, that's forward slash CCF Tucson, or you can do a search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And if you see that red icon with the little white outlined of, then you'll know that you're in the right place. <clears throat> or you can go to YouTube. Just search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube, and you will find our channel. And there, uh, as you can with Facebook, just use the comment section to ask your questions. I'm monitoring those questions throughout the program, so if a question pops up and we're not uh, out of time, we'll get to that question. If not, we take all those questions, we catalog them, and we get to them in order. So at some point in this week, we will get to your question if we don't get to it today. If you, don't want to, uh, if you want to avoid social media platforms altogether, you can just go straight to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. And once you get there, you can just hit that Watch Live tab and watch the stream. Not only can you watch this program Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, you can watch all of our services uh, starting Christmas Eve. Our Sunday morning services will be 9 and 11 a.m., and our Wednesday Oasis service is at 6.30 p.m. Wednesday evenings, we're going through the book of Ezekiel. We teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire books of the Bible. On Sunday, we're currently going through the book of Acts. So I'd encourage you to check that out if you haven't done so. <clears throat> we also have an app. I'd encourage you to check that out. You can download it from the iTunes or, I'm sorry, the Apple or Google Play Store. And on this app, you can uh, track our calendar of events things that are going on here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, as well as take notes and leave and highlight texts in the little nifty digital Bible that comes with that app. You can also add us as a channel to any Amazon or Roku smart products. So if you have one of those and you want to add us, and if you're <clears throat> either on the road or you're at home and you want to watch a service or this program, you can do so right on your Roku or Amazon Fire device. We also archive our program, A Reason for Hope, on Rumble. So if you want to catch past episodes, they're all categorized by the top three questions answered on that episode. So it's a great way to just go through a list of questions and then click on that episode and, and check out the answers. If you want to email us a question, so you can maybe little maybe it's a little more personal or you just don't want to use social media, you can just email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. Also encourage you to follow Pastor Scott on the X platform, formerly Twitter. You can do so by uh, following his handle, which is at ScottR4H. That's at ScottR4H. You can also leave questions on that feed 
and we can get to those questions here on the program as well. That said, take a moment to pray. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for being present here with us today. We pray for the power of your spirit to surround us on this program, to guide us in whatever parts of your word you want us to explore. Thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to seek you during this time. And that's our desire, is that at the end of this program, we know you a little bit better, that your love is more tangibly evident within our lives, and uh, that your word is more and more a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path than it's ever been before. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to follow you during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, do we have uh, anything you want to cover as far as a uh, brief prophecy update, anything in the news that's really worthy of mentioning today? Well, uh, lots of things worthy of mentioning. We'll try to condense it down to the uh, bare essentials. As most of you know, uh, war continues in the uh, Gaza Strip uh, between Israel and Hamas. Uh, There have been a number of uh, notable Uh, expansions of this war. If you've been following us on the broadcast, we have talked about the threat that the uh, Houthi rebels, as they are known in the country of Yemen, uh, have been uh, posing to uh, commerce, uh, uh, maritime commerce, uh, around the southern part of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, uh, hijacking uh, tankers and and so on. Uh, Even in one incident last week, uh, launching missiles at a USS destroyer, uh, the USS Kearney. Uh, the response to this seems to be proceeding apace as there have been reports of numerous explosions in the country of Yemen, particularly in the southern part of Yemen where the Houthi rebels uh, seem to be running the show. Uh, there is also a very interesting development in Iran as a major hydrocarbon processing plant in the eastern part of Iran Uh, exploded over the weekend. Uh, The uh, Iranian government is now acknowledging that this was uh, something that was done by Israel. Now, we don't know if they're just doing that because, uh, let's face it, if uh, a uh, soccer match gets rained out in Tehran, it's usually Israel's fault. Uh, But uh, it would not surprise me if Israel was involved with this. Uh, You might recall a few years ago uh, that there was a a major dust-up over the cyber warfare that Israel was doing that uh, really uh, stuck a a, uh, spoke in the tires, if you will, of Iran's nuclear program. It was a program called Stuxnet uh, that uh, infiltrated uh, uh, the Iranians' uh, internet and uh, made its way to their centrifuge system where they were processing rich uranium. It uh, very slightly threw off uh, the uh, precise calculations needed in these centrifuges to, to produce the purification of uranium they were looking for and basically rendered uh, the material useless as far as being able to be used for weapons. Well, it may, very well may be that that kind of cyber warfare was responsible for this explosion in eastern Iran. Why is that significant? Because uh, Benjamin Netanyahu over the weekend met with, guess who? Uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, Putin was on a a tour of the Middle East. He met with uh, the head of the Saudi government in Riyadh, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, a number of different uh, nations along this line, and had a sit down with Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, where Benjamin Netanyahu told Vladimir Putin in no uncertain terms, in a very direct way, that Israel was distressed and unsupportive of Russia's uh, support 
of Iran. Well, we have told you why Russia supports Iran. It's the classic deal with the devil. Uh, Russia used to have a huge problem with the Chechen rebels, uh, Chechnya being one of the former Soviet republics. Uh, the Chechens wanted independence. They are also Shiite Muslims and uh, pretty much a wholly owned subsidiary of the Mad Mullahs in Tehran, who are the gurus of Shia Islam. Well, uh, the Chechen rebels did incredible damage to Russia as far as uh, sabotage goes, uh, airliners being blown up, apartment buildings, but uh, the culminating uh, incident that took place was the Beslan School Massacre, where over 400 school children uh, died when the Chechens came in and uh, massacred them and uh, were ended, ended up uh, being killed by uh, uh, Russian uh, security forces. Well, this almost put Vladimir Putin out of a job. And at the end of the Beslan School Massacre, an interesting diplomatic uh, on, uh, opening took place. Russia and Iran have never had diplomatic or military or cooperative relations. But lo and behold, Russia not only opened diplomatic relations with Iran, uh, they also uh, made a pact where they would build them a nuclear reactor and supply them with weapons. And suddenly, guess what happened to their problem with the Chechen rebels? It went away. So, you know, when we read Ezekiel chapter 38, for instance, about the Gog and Magog invasion predicted in the last days, the fascinating detail of this is not just that the tribal roots of the Russian people are identified as being part and parcel of this invasion, but uh, we are told that Iran, ancient Persia, in fact, if you talk to an Iranian today, they would say, no, I'm not Iranian, I'm a Persian. They take great pride in uh, that heritage and the history. Uh, well, one of the things uh, that uh, you'll discover in, uh, in that uh, analysis of uh, this last day's invasion is that the leader of this invasion is literally drawn into invading Israel with hooks in his jaws, doesn't want to do it. Uh, goes down and uh, some of the uh, sideline uh, critics of this are uh, seen in this passage as saying, have you come down to take spoil, you know, and great booty and so on. Uh, you know, there used to be questions about that, like why uh, the Russians and their cohorts would be interested, what spoil Israel would have to offer, you know, apart from fruits and vegetables and so on, until, of course, the discovery of the massive natural gas tracks right off of Israel. Now, that makes Israel uh, a part of the big boys club as far as supplying energy to the entire world. These are massive natural gas tracks. You know, and so we see these pieces of the puzzle coming together. Mm. For Netanyahu to get in uh, uh, Putin's face and essentially say, we don't appreciate what you're doing with the Russians and we're well aware of how you're supporting them, but it's not going to do you any good. How interesting that right after that conversation, we have this explosion at the Iranian hydrocarbon plant. We also see that things in northern Israel are heating up. Uh, the, uh, the extermination, if you will, of the, uh, Gaza, the uh, Hamas terrorists in Gaza is proceeding apace. Uh, the massive now surrenders of Hamas uh, terrorists to Israel. You've probably seen other pictures of them standing around in their skivvies. Some people say, oh, they're humiliating them. No, they're not. They're just making sure that none of them have suicide vests on as they surrender, which is definitely a legitimate threat. But, uh, you know, it seems like things are beginning to implode as far as Hamas is concerned, but it's a warm-up for what's going on uh, in Lebanon. In fact, uh, yesterday, there was a very strong statement made 
uh, by the head of the IDF that unless Hezbollah uh, retreats to the boundaries that had been agreed upon uh, in the last Israel-Lebanese war that took place, uh, UN Resolution 1771, uh, Hezbollah has violated that with impunity. Uh, the United Nations peacekeeping forces that are supposed to keep Hezbollah from occupying this. Well, last weekend, a missile attack on Israel was launched 20 meters away from one of the main UN peacekeeping uh, emplacements there. So basically, it, it's kind of like having a watchdog. If you define a watchdog as the dog that watches the burglars as they take your stuff, uh, same thing going on with these UN peacekeepers there. But Israel made this statement over the weekend that unless the nation of Lebanon, and Lebanon does have an independent uh, military apart from Hezbollah up there, unless they cause Hezbollah to retreat to the boundaries agreed upon on UN Resolution 1771, that Israel would take out Lebanon's uh, energy grid. And they fully have the capability to be able to do that. Uh, Lebanon, and Adrian, you've been in that neck of the woods, so you kind of know the sens sensitivities and sensibilities going on over there. Uh, Lebanon wants to desperately avoid another civil war like the one they went through when Yasser Arafat and the PLO were running the show there, which essentially transformed Beirut from uh, being the French Riviera of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean into a bombed out uh, shell of its former self. Uh, the uh, Lebanese uh, economy has been wrecked. Uh, it's, uh, the government is basically cobbled together and hanging by a thread. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing that the Lebanese really don't want to do is go to war with Hezbollah because, again, that would divide the country, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because they're, they're <clears throat> I was there in 2007 after the 2006 conflict, and they have a secular government where three different religious groups are required to be you know on in the government in equal representation equal yeah. representation yeah. so it's remarkable and tragic that a group like Hezbollah could go in and wreak such havoc and i remember <clears throat> getting threats just from be, being a christian because of Hezbollah having my host get calls from representatives saying yes we're with Hezbollah and we're you need to stop doing what you're doing and and i just can't imagine how some of the other christian groups could survive or thrive even uh, with that in place. And back then it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now. Yeah, so the three groups are obviously Hezbollah, the Shiite Muslims. Mm -hmm. uh, then you have uh, Maronite Christians, I guess is the sect of Christianity that are represented in that government. What is the third, do you know? Uh, uh, that's a, I can't remember. This, this is your final Jeopardy yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, that other group of, it's like a, mixture of Islam and Christianity and or Catholicism even. Uh, it's a very interesting group. Is they it the these, Druze? Yes, they yeah. were these white um, caps. Yeah, the Druze, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, so I, I, I can't say that it's Roman Catholic, and you can't say that it's Islamic, because it's like this really bizarre mixture of two, but they're a, a, a really interesting ethnic group. I did some performances in there in areas where it was predominantly Druze, and uh, uh, what a fascinating group of people, very peaceful, uh, not uh, like militant in any way that I could see. Um, I even thought I was told that at one point, I think I got the indication they were very pacifist. 
but uh, yeah, they have their government. It has to have an equal representation of these different groups. Yeah. In their government and. Uh, and Hezbollah has basically taken over. Yeah, there, there there really is no control by a secular Lebanese government. So Israel basically is saying, uh, look, you either make Hezbollah play nice, or we are going to take out your grid. And they've also made statements about saying, you see what we've done to Gaza City? That is going to happen to Beirut next, unless you quit launching anti-tank missiles into Israeli territory from uh, these uh, very well-entrenched mm-hmm. positions right across uh, the Lebanon-Israel border. I mean, uh, literally a few hundred meters away. Uh, so uh, that is something that we definitely want to pay attention to. And, you know, prophetically, obviously it comes back to the the uh, the statement that uh, Jerusalem is going to be a stumbling stone and a cup of reeling for all nations gathered against it. Mm. Uh, and uh, that all nations of the world are eventually going to see that Jerusalem is the big problem. Uh, Israel is going to end up getting blamed for being there for existing and uh i think uh, you're going to tend to see that tide moving in that direction certainly see it in academia uh certainly yeah. uh the uh, situation that took place the aftermath of uh, the presidents of mit harvard and uh, the university of pennsylvania appearing before a uh, senate committee mm-hmm. uh and uh, basically uh being asked is it uh, against your code of conduct for people to call for genocide against the Jews. And they would say, well, it depends on the context. Well, Liz McGill, who was the president of the University of Pennsylvania, um, resigned over the weekend as a result of the uproar over her remarks. Uh, You have to understand university presidents essentially exist to do two things. Now, obviously they have some administrative uh, visionary setting functions and things like this, but they exist to do two things, public relations and fundraising. Well, a Wall Street uh, hedge fund manager, uh, to end all hedge fund managers, essentially said that unless Liz McGill goes, I'm withdrawing my $100 million Hmm. contribution to the University of Pennsylvania and their famous Wharton Law uh, Business School that they have there. Well, money talks, and so Liz walked. Actually, she just walked down the hallway. She is a fully tenured professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, but no longer the president. Uh, Whether we're going to see such reassignments at MIT and Harvard, we don't know. There's already uh, war drums beating about the president of Harvard now Mm -hmm. being embroiled in a plagiarism scandal. So, uh, you know, we we see these things going on. But even with all of that, there's been no apology for uh, protests calling for the extermination of the Jews. Saw Mm -hmm. pictures of one uh, protest going on at a university back east. Uh, where they were carrying signs saying, let's reinstitute the final solution. Uh, the final solution, for those of you who don't know, is uh, Germany's uh, desire to wipe out Israel uh, through the Holocaust. So uh, just a- an incredible spiritual battle going on, I believe. We talked a little bit about this at Calvary Christian Fellowship uh, of Tucson yesterday. You can see the message we gave on Acts chapter 16, that anti-Semitism was alive and cooking back then during the time of the Apostle Paul, same spirits behind it mm. today. And uh, saw a fascinating uh, study that was done by the Anti-Defamation League. They reported today that since Hamas uh, attacked Israel on October 7th, there have been 2,031 anti-Semitic incidents in the United States alone, the highest figure the organization has ever recorded compared to any two-month period. That is a 337% 
increase compared to the same period last year. According to the data, there were 40 cases of physical assault, 337 cases of vandalism, 749 cases of verbal or written harassment, and 905 demonstrations that include anti-Semitic rhetoric, expressions of support for terrorism against the state of Israel and or against Zionism. Uh, A spokesman from uh, the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, said this frightening pattern of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic attacks, has not stopped since the Israeli-Hamas war began on October 7th, with no signs of decrease in anti-Semitic incidents. Jewish communities all over the U.S. are flooded with hatred. Public officials and heads of universities must lower the temperature and take clear action and declare that this behavior is unacceptable in order to prevent more violence. So, you know, the battle for hearts and minds goes on, and you, you know, you would wonder, uh, since you take a look at the map of the Middle East, and uh, you take a look at the massive expanses controlled by Muslims and the tiny sliver of land that is controlled by the Jews in Israel, uh, why, uh, you know, the, the uh, verdict of academia, the verdict of uh, many on the left-leaning side of things is that uh, Israel has, is the problem and has to go by any means necessary. From the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free means it'll be free of Jews, in essence. Where does this come from? Well, it basically comes from uh, the fact that uh, over the last, oh, 50 years or so, our uh, universities and much of our media has been indoctrinated in the theory of Marxism. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, you know, at the risk of uh, too simplistic a, uh, an analysis here, Marxism essentially teaches that there are only two kinds of groups in this world, the oppressor and the oppressed. The oppressor is the one who has the edge financially or militarily, uh, and the oppressed are those who suffer as a result of what the oppressor does. In Marxism, the oppressor can do no right. There are no shades of gray here. If you're an oppressor, you are evil and you must go by any means necessary. That's where that phrase comes from. Uh, If you're the oppressed, you can do no wrong because you're merely reacting to the oppression that is visited you by the oppressor. And and so a lot of times we look at this and we shake our heads and go, these seem like intelligent people. Mm -hmm. Um, Why are they going after Israel, especially when the majority of Jewish people in this country tend to vote for causes they would tend to support? Well, once again, this Marxist overlay, these Marxist goggles, Mm -hmm that people look at in academia and media and uh, really influence a lot of what uh, the mainstream media has to say about what's going on in Israel. Israel has been branded the oppressor. They can do no right. Hamas has been branded the oppressed. They can do no wrong. Even when uh, the catalog list of uh, war crimes that Hamas has and is continuing to prosecute uh, against uh, Jews, civilians, and so on, uh, continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we, we take a look at uh, the big issue, like uh, the uh, fate of the hostages that are still held there in Israel, I said, I, I hope I'm wrong about this, but I think Hamas will hold on to those hostages just as long as they feel like they will give them any kind of edge in negotiations. By the way, uh, Hamas, just before airtime, upped the ante on their negotiating position, saying that Israel has to have an immediate ceasefire and uh, immediately has to release more prisoners uh, from Hamas in their jail, hundreds and hundreds of prisoners, or all of the hostages will die. 
Hmm. That is their latest uh, negotiating wow. tactic. Now, if they do that, if they overplay their hand and these hostages do in fact die, we got confirmation that 20 some hostages uh, have died in the hands of Hamas. Their bodies obviously haven't been returned and so on. But if, uh, say, the remaining 130 or so uh, die in Hamas hands, Katie, bar the door. Uh, Israel is not going to have any reason whatsoever to hold back in any way, shape, or form. So uh, be praying uh, for the peace of Jerusalem. Be praying for the Jewish people. Be praying for these hostages that God would intervene miraculously. A, uh, an attempt to rescue some of the hostages by Israeli special forces, unfortunately, went sideways over the weekend, and a couple of members of special forces seriously wounded in all of that. The hostages were not obviously recovered. Uh, but uh, the more we see these surrenders of Hamas individuals going on in uh, Gaza, the more uh, perhaps intelligence uh, Israel is going to be able to get as to where the, the location of these hostages are. And perhaps with this enhanced intelligence, the hostages can be released. But these are certainly the things we need to be praying about. Hmm, absolutely. And that, re that oppressive class can is usually defined by just being successful or a majority viewpoint on things. Right. That's what it means to be an oppressor because the normal behavior and the majority of people think or do a certain way, you have some sort of hegemony, then all of a sudden that just automatically becomes the oppressor class rather than a meritocracy, which is what we're based on. But yeah, they, yeah. they take that information and yeah, there, there's it. This is a really twisted form of, I believe, satanically inspired morality. The reason I say it's satanically inspired is that more innocent people died under this philosophy in the 20th century uh, than uh, really virtually under any other philosophy, any other oppressive regime the world has ever known. So. Yep. Well, we have uh, some questions left over from Friday. Uh, one was, uh, can you explain the parable of the ten virgins? I want to know how to keep my lamp filled. That's from Mike. Yeah, the uh, parable of the ten virgins is found in the book of Matthew chapter 25. And uh, here's something that will probably make you all very glad that you tuned in this broadcast today because this is a profound observation. Matthew 25 follows Matthew chapter mm. 24. Now, <laughs> the reason I state the obvious like this is in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus answers some key questions the disciples asked of him. Uh, tell us, when will these things be, that is, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So in Matthew 24, we see both things being described. In the near fulfillment, some 40 years after the, the, Jesus made these remarks, uh, the Romans came in, destroyed Herod's temple, raised it to the ground. Not one stone was left upon another. And the story as to why that happened is absolutely fascinating and confirms Jesus' credentials for being a prophet. Every detail of what he said came to pass. But we also see a look into the future to the times of the end, the times that will be associated with the physical return of Jesus to earth, where every eye is going to see him uh, all the nations are going to mourn because of him. His coming is going to be as unavoidable as the uh, lightning which flashes from the east even to the west. And so in Matthew chapter 24, we literally get a tour uh, from Jesus' point of view from there to eternity, now, literally from his first coming to his second coming as far as what's going on there. And Jesus wraps up 
his conversation about his return uh, with a really strong exhortation that says the number one thing that people need to be doing is watching. In, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 40, we're told then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you don't, do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, as was Jesus' uh, style, I guess to use Gail Irwin's uh, famous line, the Jesus' style of teaching would not only be laying out uh, kind of a declaratory statement like that, like my coming is going to be like a thief in the night. Be aware, be watchful. Mm -hmm. Jesus was always very good about enhancing that with a visual aid, if you will. I guess in this case, it would be one that you would hear with your ears, but a vivid word picture that would illustrate the main point that he was making to be watchful and that a commitment to watchfulness for the Lord's return, that he could come at any time, would have certain benefits and a lack of commitment to watchfulness of the Lord's return would present uh, absolutely certain dangers for those who started to play fast and loose mm -hmm. along that line. In Matthew 25 and verse 1, we see Jesus giving one of these word pictures. It's the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. It says, then, when? Well, when the Lord returns. It says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil with their vessels and their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, what is being referred to here was part and parcel of the traditional Jewish uh, routine in a wedding. A uh, uh, couple would be betrothed for a year's period of time. Uh, they would have all the legal responsibilities of husband and wife, but no uh, consummation of the marriage until after a year had passed. During that year, the bridegroom would prepare a place for he and his bride to be able to live. Once that, uh, that uh, uh, domicile, that, that place of living was put together, then the bridegroom would come and the word would come out for, for the wedding feast, this seven-day celebration, this blowout party to end all blowout parties, uh, the, the social highlight of a village, uh, the highlight of any couple's life. It was a time of honoring their relationship, something that every uh, Jewish young man looked forward to as a groom and certainly every Jewish young woman looked forward to as a bride. The only problem with it is, is that uh, there was no date that was sent on the invitations. Mm. You could tell that the time was getting near by taking a look at the construction of the domicile. You knew that it was about to happen, but you really didn't know when. And so as that time drew near, there would be uh, this ritual that would come where the bridegroom would come for his bride and take that bride to that wedding feast after the domicile was completed. Well, it was considered a great honor to be one of the attendants of the, the bride and the bridegroom, uh, much like being asked uh, to be 
uh, say, a, uh, a bridesmaid or a groomsman in our day and age. You know, you would, you would be like at the A table, if you will, if you were part of this group. Yeah. But with that, uh, that right came responsibility. You had to be ready to join the procession whenever the bridegroom would come. You would know the general time frame, but you couldn't really know the specific hour. Uh, because it was all contingent on uh, the last details, last touches uh, being put together for the domicile. So that's what's going on here. You have these 10 virgins. They know the bridegroom could come uh, for the bride at any moment, at any time. They are prepared to a certain extent. Some of them are prepared in sort of a haphazard, slapdash way. Others are prepared and devote thoughtfulness to it. Okay, we have oil for our lamps, but what if the bridegroom's delayed and our lamps run out of oil? Well, we're going to have some extra oil in case something like this happens. Why? Because we don't want to miss out on being a part of this incredible highlight moment, uh, the marriage supper of uh, the lamb, if you will, if you want to use that term. So we are told that the, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wives, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wives answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And they went, when they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you neither know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, when the bridegroom says, I don't know you, it isn't like he didn't know what their names were or he had a sudden bout of amnesia. The idea of saying, I know you, is the idea of having a proper and respectful relationship with one another. You know, we, we see the euphemism in the Old Testament that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a child. Well, it's not just a polite way of talking about the sexual union. It's talking about Adam fulfilling all of the godly responsibilities that a husband is due his wife. That is the kind of knowledge that is involved there. And so when the bridegroom says, I don't know you, it was more or less an indictment on these five foolish virgins who were open to the idea of being a part of the processional, but kind of did the minimum, if you will, to get on by. And doing that minimum to get on by, if you will, uh, was something that would put them uh, in peril because the wise virgins, the ones who go, man, whatever it takes, we're going to be ready for this, showed not just by their attitude, but by their actions, that there was nothing more important to them than properly honoring the bridegroom and the bride when this great moment took place. Now, notice all of this comes back to illustrating one great point. And, and this is another insight into parables I'd like to uh, throw in here at no additional charge. Um, sometimes people will pick apart parables to the point where everything in the parables is incredibly significant. 
And people say, well, you know, oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. And, and so some had an extra anointing of the Holy Spirit and some only just had, say, you know, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't have the coming upon power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why they weren't ready for the, Well, you know, maybe that's a sermon for another day, but that's not what this passage is teaching. Hmm. When you come to a parable of Jesus, you have to realize there is one main point the word picture is illustrating. And Jesus is really good about telling us what the point of this parable is. Not some hidden meaning, not some esoteric meaning, not some meaning that you can only understand if you, you uh, read it in the original language mm -hmm. and, and so on and read 15 different scholars' musings on it. Here's what the parable means. <laughs> Watch, therefore, Be on the <laughs> for you know neither the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, I think that's an incredibly important message because this points to, I believe, a call for us to understand what the Bible calls the doctrine of imminency, mm -hmm. that Jesus could come at any moment, that there is no prophecy of Scripture that has to be fulfilled prior to the time that Jesus would come. And the reason I want to emphasize that is that it seems like the closer we get to the Lord's return, the more static I think gets on the line, especially as far as prophecy is concerned. Uh, you know, you'll run into some people who will say, well, yeah, you know, there's no such thing as a rapture. The word rapture isn't even in your uh, English Bible. Well, it's not in your English Bible, but certainly in the Latin Vulgate, that's where we get the term rapture from. The word raptus or rapio, Latin word, which literally means to snatch out. Uh, the word harpazo is, which means to catch someone up, as we yeah. see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So I've always found that to be a really specious kind of argument. You could also say the word Trinity isn't found in your Bible. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach it. You know, it's yeah. shorthand for a lot of things that the Bible says on the subject. So some people will put static on the line that way, but a lot of static comes in this idea of saying, well, maybe there's not a rapture at all. Uh, some people say, well, maybe we're already in the kingdom spiritually. Boy, if this is the thousand year reign of Christ where, and Jesus has already come back, I want my money back because uh, <laughs> we're not seeing the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth like the waters cover mm -hmm. the sea. Uh, we're, we're not seeing, you know, uh, righteousness prevailing. We're not seeing Jesus rule and reign over the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, we're seeing a lot of wickedness going on in this world, mm -hmm. quite frankly, and it's getting worse. So, you know, I, I don't buy into that one. Uh, if you buy into the spiritualizing... Which is uh, called post-millennialism. Post yeah, or even amillennialism. Which yeah. is the idea that there is no millennium. There's no thousand-year reign of Christ, Christ. right, on, here on earth. Uh, and and it, it just forces you to spiritualize virtually every prophecy that is made about the return of Jesus and what his kingdom is all about. So, you know, and again, one of the reasons that we don't buy into that, or even the idea of a mid-tribulation rapture, and people say, well, people have suffered down through time. Why should we get the get-out-of-jail-free card? Mm -hmm. says the Antichrist will make war against the saints and prevail against them. So clearly we've got to be in there for the Antichrist to make war against us. Well, you know, again, what does the word saint mean? It means one set aside for God's purposes. Well, we are told very clearly uh, regarding the seven years of tribulation that Satan is going to have it out for saints, like the Jewish people, mm -hmm. especially the 144,000 and of uh, 12,000 reaches the 12 tribes of Israel, the two prophets and so forth. Uh, we're told uh, in the book of Zechariah that two-thirds of the nation of Israel is going to be wiped out by the Antichrist uh, when they don't bow the knee to him, when they understand that Jesus really is the Messiah. So yeah, those count as saints, I think, 
uh, we see all kinds of martyrs yeah. coming out of the tribulation. Because there's so, no mention of the Gentile church after, what, chapter 6, chapter 5? There's ap Actually, after chapter 3. Oh, wow. The, the church disappears from the scene as soon as John hears the words come up here. So, you know, we don't really buy into that mid-trib position, and I understand why some people take, try to take it, but I don't buy into it for this very important reason. Jesus says here, you've just got to watch. No man knows the day or hour of his return. Now, if the tribulation, uh, if the rapture happens at the midway point of the seven years, um, we can know the day and hour of Jesus' return because we know when the midway point of the tribulation is. Yeah, the abomination when, desolation will go right into the temple. And yeah, the Antichrist is going to sit in the temple, declare himself God to be worshipped. You can know and count down from that, according to the book of Daniel, uh, that there's going to be three and a half Jewish years until Jesus returns. Mm. Uh, in fact, from the time that the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with many nations, a strong covenant that allows Israel to rebuild its temple on its historic site, you've got seven years. You can literally count down the days till Jesus comes. And that's from so, Daniel 9? Daniel chapter 12. 12, sorry. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, 1,290 days mm. from the abomination that causes desolation to the time the kingdom comes. So I don't buy it for that reason because uh, Jesus just says, no man knows the day or the hour. If you are in the tribulation period, you can know the day. Mm. In fact, I think God is so precise from the minute the Antichrist's uh, rear end hits that seed in the temple, Makes sense, yeah. it's gonna be 1,290 days. I mean, to the <clears throat> second. So this parable coming right after Matthew 24 makes perfect sense. And the main point is, be ready and watchful. You don't know when I'll come back. Yeah, and and you know again the the, the gripe that kind of comes up against that is okay. But what if Jesus doesn't come for two hundred years? You know, people have been at, Paul was anticipating Jesus' return at any time. Didn't come in Paul's life. Uh, we've known people like Chuck Smith who thought he was going to see Jesus return in his life, and he's gone home to his reward. You know, how do we know we're going to actually see these things? Well, here's the bottom line: we don't, mm. because no man knows the day or the hour. But I do believe we can know the general time. And that's why we give you these prophecy updates. Because mm. Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up for your salvation draws near. Very important for us mm. to be aware that Jesus can come at any moment. And, you know, I say this a lot, but I'll throw it in at no extra charge. Uh, you know, people say, well, what if Jesus doesn't come back for 200 years and you've lived your life each and every day like Jesus could come before the end of the day? Um, well, I want to live my life each and every day with the back, thought in the back of my mind, sometimes in the front of my mind, that this could be the day I see Jesus face to face. Mm -hmm. Now, say Jesus tarries for 200 years. Uh, you know, I've mentioned before, I turned 65 this year. Uh, I get all kinds of things from AARP and things about Medicare plans A through XX and, uh, and all that. I never thought that would happen to me. Mm. But, you know, I'm 65 now. Say I live to be 95. That's a pretty good lifespan, right? Well, if I live to be 95, 30 years from now, right? I'm going to see Jesus face to face in 30 years. I mean, I'm going to go to him through the valley of the shadow of death, but my destination is seeing Jesus face to face. Mm. Now, 30 years goes by really quick. You know, say Jesus decides to come back before then. Well, it's going to be even less. But I do know this, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Adrian, uh, this world is going to end for me probably in 30 years as far as my seeing Jesus mm -hmm. one way or the other. Either he comes for me or I go to him. 
So why not live in light of that truth? And the one thing I've never really been able to get a straight answer from the critics of this point of view uh, about uh, is this. If I live my life today like Jesus could come tonight, right? What am I going to want to do? I'm going to be wanting to be found faithful when he comes. Hmm. I'm going to be wanting to be a person who's in his word. I'm going to be wanting to be a person who follows through in his priorities for my family, for my friends, for, for my fellow believers. For, I, I want to be about the business of reaching out and sharing with people whenever I get the opportunity to, as God opens up the doors for me to do that. Hmm. Because I know that my master's coming. I don't want to be like the foolish virgins who say, oh, he's not coming for 200 years. What difference does it make? Well, maybe he's going to come and you're going to prove by your actions uh, that maybe your little light didn't really shine and uh, you didn't really have a relationship with mm-hmm. God. Because one thing I think is characteristic about a true saint, a truly born again believer, how do you know you're really born again? Is you love Jesus. You really love Jesus and you love him personally. And the thought that he could come at any moment and that you would see him face to face, that you would hear his voice say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. We, we sang a song about that yesterday at church and it almost moved me to tears thinking that mm. someday Jesus could possibly say that to me. After all he's done for me, you know, the, the, the love that I have for him because he first loved me. You know, if you have that kind of passion uh, for Jesus, you're gonna wanna see him, mm. you know? And every day we spend here on earth is one day spent separated from him. So uh, because of that, I can pray. Maranatha, the Lord comes. Some people say, yeah, but you're going to get raptured. No, all these other people are going to have to go through all of that. And I'll leave that in God's hands. Mm-hmm. God knows who needs to be raptured, and God knows who needs to go through the tribulation period. And it's all going to work out in such a way that if people really know the Lord, they're going to see the Lord face to face. They're going to go, man, Lord, you really had it down. You know, even though I didn't go in the rapture and had to live through the tribulation, I was able to glorify you even in that set of circumstances. And for those of us who are rapturing and say, wow, Lord, you really had it down. Mm. That same grace that causes me undeservedly to go to heaven in the first place, undeservedly causes me to go and be exempt from this time of God's wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. So either way, God's glorified. Yeah. And why do some people say that, oh, if, you know, the rap, because I remember growing up hearing some of that, that if the rapture happens, you're definitely not saved and you're going to go to hell. That's it. There's no hope for you. Well, (laughs) I wish people who say such things would read their Bibles because in the book of Revelation chapter seven, uh, we see a section of scripture where uh, the angels are told to put a pause on the plagues that are going to visit this earth until 144,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel are sealed and set aside by God. And then this 144,000 are are categorized by each of the 12 tribes of Israel they come from. I don't know how much more literally you could say these are Jewish people. Uh, They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not super spiritual Christians. They are Jews Mm -hmm. from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Dan and the tribe, you know, the the list goes on and on. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting right after those 144,000 are sealed, uh, suddenly John sees this multitude that no one could count around the throne in heaven, singing praises to God. And, uh, one of the elders that he has seen there asked John a question. He said, uh, who are those people and where they come from? And John goes, well, sir, you know, <laughs> greatest, wisest thing John could ever say in that circumstance. He says, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Mm-hmm. 
and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They are worthy to stand before him to put their faith in Jesus and so on. Wow. Uh, so, you know... Uh, From what every the, nation and every tongue. Yeah, yeah, and, and I really believe that God is going to honor his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mm -hmm. in such a way that the actual literal fulfillment of the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations is going to be given to the Jewish people during mm -hmm. that time. Uh, these are going to be 144,000 uh, supercharged Jewish Billy Grahams, if you will, uh, and will have a powerful ministry. If they don't reach people, you've got the two witnesses, which seem very Moses and Elijah-like, that are going to have a <laughs> worldwide impact. Nobody's going to mm -hmm. say they didn't know. And in Revelation 14, we're told, if anyone on planet Earth misses the chance to hear from the 144,000 or the two witnesses, we have an angel flying in mid-heaven with an everlasting gospel to share that every person on earth will have the opportunity to be able to hear and understand in their own language and say yes or no to a relationship with God. So there's going to be all kinds mm -hmm. of people that are going to come to know the Lord during that time. So for all you atheists out there, if God would just show himself, well, you'll have your chance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would pray for those people who are atheists out there. Uh, if you're tuning into a program like this, understand something. It's not an accident. God I believe is working on your heart. You're curious about God's word, maybe in a mocking sort of a way, but but you're interested at the very least in God's word. Uh, you know, when God shares his word, understand something, it's powerful. It's gonna get through to your heart. I speak as a former atheist. I, I remember arguing with Christians about their faith, but every once in a while, a believer would be simple enough to simply tell me, uh, you know, well, I don't know about this, but I do know that God said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'd scoff and, you know, kind of, ah, you know, and not act like it didn't really affect me. But it was almost like gospel time bombs because inevitably I'd wake up uh, a few days later, like two in the morning, I'd be like thinking in my mind, well, what if they're right? Mm. You know, what if there is a God out there? What happens to me after death? Mm. And I didn't realize it, but that was God softening up my heart. Maybe God's softening your heart up today. And maybe you've had a lot of people tell you that Jesus loved you and that he came here, left heavenly glory, was, was born of a virgin, born as a man, fully God and fully man, living a perfect life that you and I could never live, teaching like no one has ever taught before, presenting his credentials to be fully God and fully man walking among us by doing miracles, even exercising power over death itself. He died on a Roman cross. He said, no one takes my life, but he lays it down voluntarily to pay the price for your sins and mine. Jesus took your place and mine when he died on that cross. And the Bible tells us that God raised him from the dead in a moment of history that uh, can be investigated uh, to the satisfaction of any fair inquirer. The historical evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection is uh, literally overwhelming. If you've never taken a look at it, you need to check out books like More Than a Carpenter and, and others along this line. Who Moved the Stone uh, is another great book along these lines. But check into that yourself because if you come to the conclusion like I did that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then all this is true and that God does want to have a personal relationship with you and he does want to save you. And the Bible says that the only thing you need to do is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's as simple as it is. 
Now, belief is more than just intellectual acceptance of certain ideas about Jesus. It literally means to put our faith and our trust in him, leaning on him entirely. Answering that, that time-honored question, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Well, the only answer that's going to win the day is not, well, I watched The Reason for Hope a couple of times, or, you know, I went to church, or I, you know, put some money in an offering, or I tried to be a good person. No, none of those things are going to be good enough to get us into heaven, because they don't do anything about the bad things that we have done and thought and said. But here's the bottom line. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible says that by trusting in him, God justifies us. He makes us just as if we'd never sinned simply by trusting in him. Jesus put it this way, anyone who hears my voice and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He will not enter into judgment, but has passed from death into life. If you consciously, as an act of your will, simply say through prayer to God, because the Bible says whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, uh, just say, God, I believe you. I believe what you say. I believe you sent your son Jesus to die for me. Please forgive my sins. I believe Jesus paid the price for them. I believe he rose from the dead so that I could be part of your forever family. Please come into my heart and make me a brand new person. If you pray that prayer in the sincerity of your heart, uh, the Lord's going to honor that prayer. He's going to come into your heart. He's going to make you a new creation in Christ. But if you're listening to this, uh, don't put it off. Uh, you know, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear your voice, his voice, don't harden your heart. Because every time we hear God's voice and turn away, our heart gets a little bit harder. We're a little bit harder to reach. And uh, sometimes practice makes perfect. We get hard, harder, and hardest, and pretty soon we're so hardened, uh, we can't even turn to God even if we wanted to. So don't let that happen to you. If the Holy Spirit's tapping you on the shoulder, if Jesus is speaking to your heart saying, I want to come in and dine with you and you with me, the, the most intimate form of fellowship possible, mm. as he said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, just by faith, invite him in. And he will make you a brand new person, forgive your sins, give you eternal life, and you're going to have a forever friend. The good shepherd of the sheep is going to see you through this crazy world from here till the Lord comes back. Mm. Amen. Well said. Alfonso wants to know, was it a demon that possessed King Saul? And if maybe we could piggyback with a question that was asked by Ichal uh, last week, did King Saul turn to idolatry since God abandoned him? And why did his daughter, Michal, I think is how you pronounce it, have an idol ephod? So I guess there's a little combination there of, uh, did God turn his back on Saul and was he demon-possessed as a result? And is, is this connected to his daughter having an idol? Uh, what's the background there in, in two and a half minutes? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, uh, the, 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 you know, the passage uh, that you're referring to, uh, is First Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14, but we're told, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. In the old King James, it says an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Uh, the word evil uh, carries the idea of distress in there. And uh, again, uh, the suggestion was uh, given to Saul that uh, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul. David took his harp and played with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Well, the idea of an evil spirit here, it can either be interpreted as a demon that was harassing Saul. And some people say because he rejected God, nature abhors a vacuum and, you know, a literal demon inhabited King Saul. It's interesting though, that if that was the case, 
the demons seem to depart from Saul and come back and depart and come back and depart based upon David playing his harp. The word evil can also mean distressing or depressed. Uh, you know, the idea behind that is not necessarily a spiritual uh, sensibility as much as it is a, a picture of a feeling an emotional or even psychological state. Mm. And the more we see Saul's behavior in all of this time, the more we see paranoia, uh, the more we see schizophrenia, uh, Saul being murderous one moment, and then uh, when he sees that David had mercy on him, he you know, turns him and says, you're a better man than I, and so on. Uh, desperately uh, wanting to seek God, but uh, also defiantly doing the exact opposite of anything that God wanted him to do. Uh, you know, when we take a look at that, we tend to see there might be, have been some psychological implications involved with all of that, you know, and so, uh, the idea of an evil spirit from God now understand something, uh, the Lord doesn't do evil things like that. He doesn't just zap someone with an evil spirit, but he does convict people. And it's been said the most miserable creature on planet earth is a half committed believer. Mm -hmm. They have too much of Jesus to be happy in the world and too much of the world to be happy in Jesus. There's, that's no pathway to peace. And so Saul, I think, was a picture of that. I think that's the, the piece of the puzzle that makes the most sense and puts the most details of it together. Uh, it was a distressing spirit in the sense of his spirit. His joy had left him, if you will. As far as Michael goes, there were all kinds of images and things like that that were around, not necessarily worship. She put one in David's bed to disguise the fact that he was still sleeping there when he'd escaped. So, yeah. Well, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.